Hi everyone, Lewis here from the Burying Fake News team, of course accompanied by Mariella. Hi everyone. This is just to let you know that today's episode will be a little bit different from the others, but far more special. As passionate as I am and we are about science debunking fake news, we are not blind to the hurt in the world currently. We understand different content creators are doing different things to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Some are putting up nothing, whilst others are having an eight-minute silence. There is no right or wrong answer, and we thought that for us, having a conversation, reflecting on the matter, is what we wanted to do. We could spend the next indiscriminate amount of time reeling off names of hundreds of BAME scientists, but thought instead we would do a deep dive on someone in particular, and the importance of diversity in teams, especially science. We will also discuss representation in science, unconscious bias, and what more we would like to see done. You can find out more by using the hashtag Black Lives Matter or visiting the official website www.blacklivesmatter.com. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is good men do nothing, as true today as it was 200 years ago. Oh, what a piece of music that is. Gets me fired up every time. Ooh, I got chills, baby. What's going on, guys? And welcome to a very special episode of Burying Fake News. First and foremost, huge thank you to all the fine folk. You know who you are, who downloaded and got involved with last week's show, The Legion of Lewis, Mariella's Militia, Burying Fake News. We're now available on iTunes, and I would be remiss if I didn't thank the brilliance that is Neil Jackson over at Mandela's Ghostly Podcast for allowing us to achieve this. If you want to just listen to some fun, wacky, and very creative stuff, go check out Mandela's Ghostly Podcast. Really fun. Technical whiz, top bloke. But for those of you who are new to the show, my name's Lewis and I'm the soon-to-be Dr. G. This is Burying Fake News, the podcast dedicated to fact-checking, blasting, dribbling, half-witted, poorly written nincompoops and their social media posts. And as ever, to join me in this crusade, it's my missus, my carer, you know who she is, the boss, La Heffa, the queen of Burying Fake News, still mourning Bambi's mother, part-time interpreter, full-time good egg, it's Mariella. Mariella! Welcome to the show shows. Oh, wow. I don't even know where to start. The, the, you started the, the show. Started the start with a big energetic welcome for the fine folk who listen to this. Come on. We practiced this so many times. I did it myself in the shower like three. Oh, oh well, hi, guys. Thanks. And welcome All day. Back. I'm sorry. I do like that you're my militia, though. It makes me smile. So I'm excited about this episode because this is a topic I do feel very strongly about and we feel very strongly about. And I am sorry these are the circumstances that have brought us to talk about it. I'd like to clear up that we're only going to be scratching the surface of this issue because honestly, you could make an entire podcast about this. But hopefully this episode will shed some light on how racial structures in particular are integrated and intermingle with something as objective as we perceive science. And I think this is an episode where our different backgrounds as people or as nationals, as students and professionals can provide an interesting perspective into this. What do you think, Lou? I think we could have an entire podcast series dedicated to BAME and what they've managed to achieve and contribute to science and how little we would have achieved without them. Absolutely. Today's episode is dedicated to the Black Lives Matter movement. 
Today we're going to tell the story story of one individual in particular and what they had to overcome to achieve what they did, which was worldwide notoriety in their field and a general sense of uh, notoriety. Gather round, gather round, everybody. Come under the learning tree. Today we're going to be retelling the amazing life story of George Washington Carver, botanist and inventor. If you know who he is, this is a fantastic time to remember how great he was. If you've never heard the name, turn the volume up now. This man is credited with inventing over 300 uses for peanuts, including milk, various plastics and paints, uh, an assortment of dyes and cosmetics, medicinal oils, soaps, inks, wood stains, I could go on. Everything except peanut butter. It's the one thing he probably didn't do with it. He's also credited with 118 inventions utilizing potatoes, including flour, vinegar, postage stamp, glue, and even synthetic rubber. This is his incredible story. Carver was born into slavery in Missouri in the early 1860s during the American Civil War. No one knows for sure the exact date. His owner, Moses Carver, was a German-American immigrant who had purchased George's parents, Mary and Giles, in 1855 for $700. When Carver was a week old, he his sisters and his mother were kidnapped by night raiders from Arkansas. The kidnappers sold the slaves in Kentucky. Moses Carver hired a tracker to find them, but he only found one-week-old George. Moses negotiated with the raiders and secured his return. After slavery was abolished in 1865, Moses Carver and his wife Susan raised George Carver. They encouraged George to continue his intellectual pursuits and Aunt Susan, as she was affectionately known, taught him the basics of reading and writing. Black people were not allowed to go to school in his town, so he left for a black-only school ten miles out. Upon arrival, after the long walk, he had found the school closed for the evening and spent the night in a barn. In the morning, he met a woman called Mariah Watkins, when he introduced himself as Carver's George, as he had always done, she replied, no. From now on, your name is George Carver. Whilst attending the school, her words had a strong impression on him to learn all he could and urged him to leave and share his knowledge with other African Americans. At 13 years old, he left Missouri for Fort Worth in Kansas, hoping to attend the academy there. He recounts, he was only there for a short period before witnessing the lynching of a black man by a white crowd. He quickly left the city and ended up a top high school graduate of Minneapolis, Kansas. Following this, Carver was accepted to college in Highland, Kansas. However, was denied admittance once college administrators learned that he was black. Instead of attending classes, in August 1886, Carver travelled a miserable journey by wagon where he homesteaded a claim. Here, he manually ploughed 17 acres to conduct biological experiments and compiled his own geological collection. He would also do odd jobs in town and work as a ranch hand. Having saved money and acquired a small loan from the bank, in 1890, Carver started studying art and piano at Simpson College in Iowa. His art teacher recognised Carver's talent for painting flowers, plants and the natural world 
and encouraged him to study botany at what is now Iowa State University. When he began there in 1891, he was the first black student. Carver's bachelor's thesis for a degree in agriculture was Plants as Modified by Man, dated in 1894. It then took two Iowa State University professors to convince Carver to continue there for his master's degree. Carver did research at the Iowa Experiment Station under Pamel during the next two years. His work at the Experiment Station in Plant Pathology and Mycology first gained him national recognition and respect as a botanist. Carver received a Master of Science degree in 1896, being the first black person to do so. Carver then taught as the first black faculty member at Iowa State. In 1896, Carver was invited to head the Tuskegee Agriculture Department. To recruit Carver to Tuskegee, he was given an above average salary and two rooms for his personal use, although both concessions were resented by many of the white faculty. Because he had earned a master's in a scientific field from a white institution, many perceived him as arrogant. Carver taught here for 47 years, developing the department into a strong research centre and taught generations of black students. He also designed a mobile classroom to take education out to poorer areas. Carver went on to become a prominent scientific expert one of the most famous African-Americans of his time. Carver achieved international fame in political and professional circles. President Theodore Roosevelt admired his work and sought his advice on agricultural matters in the United States. And Carver is also known to have advised Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi. From the 1920s to the mid-1930s, Carver toured white southern colleges for the Commission on Interracial Cooperation. Carver died after falling down his stairs at his home on January 5th, 1943, at the age of 78, and was buried next to his first employer on the Tuskegee grounds. His epitaph reads, He could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honour in being helpful to the world. I'm now going to list some of the honours that he was awarded during his life. The 1923 Spinyard Medal for Outstanding Achievement, 1928 Honorary Doctorate from Simpson College, the 39 Roosevelt Medal for Outstanding Contribution, 1940 the Carver established the George Washington Carver Foundation at the Tuskegee Institute, 1941 George Washington Carver Museum is dedicated, in 1942 Henry Ford builds a replica of Carver's birth cabin at the Ford Museum, and he also in 42 dedicates a laboratory in his honour in Dearborn. In 1943, Liberty SS George Washington Carver is launched. In 47, George Washington Carver Area High School is named in his honour. In 1950, George Washington Carver State Park was named. Between 1951 to 1954, the US Mint features Carver on a 50-cent silver commemorative coin. In 1965, the ballistic missile submarine USS George Washington Carver is launched. 1969, Iowa State University constructs Carver Hall in his honour. 1943, Congress designates January 5th George Washington Carver Recognition Day. 1999, USDA names a portion of its campus the George Washington Carver Centre. 
in 2004, the George Washington Carver Bridge in Des Moines opens. In 2007, the Missouri Botanical Gardens has an area named with him in his honor. There has since been a dozen or so more schools and several new species of plants named after him. What a huge contribution to science and education. Wow. That was one heck of a life story. I mean, you talk about he was born into slavery. He was kidnapped. He saw yeah. someone lynched. Yeah, there there was so much he went to went through. And let me just get this straight, which was I was shocked from the beginning. He did his research on peanuts and potatoes. He was known by Peanut Man by many of his peers. That's so crazy. I didn't even know you could get so many things out of peanuts and potatoes. Oh, God, yeah. Well, we have potatoes give everything, like what he said, synthetic rubber. But um, if you if you ferment them very well with some sugar, you'll, you'll get a very good vodka. Oh, wow. Well, that's super fascinating. And I think, you know, this is a life story that really illustrates how a individual person had to face so much adversity from every single context of his life that a lot of his white peers wouldn't have had to go through at this time. He wasn't given anything. He had to work for everything. His first uni he tried to go to, they they kicked him out because he was black and they didn't know he was black until he arrived. They just saw the grades and the scorecard and thought, oh, this application's really good. And they saw him and went, this is not, not you know, we don't have black people here. Oh, wow. You know? Nobody did anything for him except for his influential teacher in his first school. Like, even you might be thinking, oh, well, he was raised by his former owners. These mm-hmm. people were still slave owners. And I read some horrific things about them. I can't confirm, but it's alleged they castrated him. Oh my gosh. I can't confirm it, but why why would he confirm it? Well, and on top of that, I mean, there are so many other horrible things. Like I said, being slave owner is still not a good thing, is it? He was a piece of shit. Absolutely. And his quote, Aunt Susan, she was a piece of shit. Oh gosh. Well, you know, and I think this is a story from, you said, like, the 1800s, maybe early 1900s. Um, We see a lot of, like, really overt racism in every single possible way in this story, don't we? Yeah, from, like, him witnessing the lynching was insane. Yeah. Imagine you've just moved somewhere and then you see someone killed in front of you by a cheering crowd. Yeah, no, definitely not the neighborhood you want to be in. He just left town. He did not want to be around. He just said, you know what? This is not the place for me. Oh, well, I wouldn't either. Oh, my goodness. Imagine that. You know, I think so. You know, thank you for sharing that story with us about this really, really unique life. And I think a lot of things that we're seeing in this story, the racism, the racism especially, is still something that we are seeing today. Without question. Absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, one of those things is that we today are still seeing really overt racist um, activities going on all around the world. Right now, the the light has been shining on the United States, but it really happens everywhere. And this kind of brings us to our next sort of topic that we'd like to talk about, which is how institutionalized racism, systemic racial bias is integrated, actually into technology and our social systems that affect things like mass incarceration of people of color, for example. Absolutely. Lead the way. All right. So I'd like to talk to you guys about an expose done by ProPublica that is a like a platform online for journalism. 
and they exposed this software called Compass, C-O-M-P-A-S. You guys can find this online, and it is a really, really shocking story. So the Compass software is something that was integrated into the criminal justice system in the United States. I'm, I'm not sure if this was introduced anywhere else, but for now it was definitely several states of the U.S. And basically, this is a, so- a software system that was used to quote-unquote predict or create some sort of a score that's like a risk assessment on whether certain individuals would reoffend or not. Now, it's important to mention that this score is actually used by judges, for example, to give out verdicts. Um, so ProPublica collected more than 7,000 risk scores assigned to people arrested in a city in Florida. And not only did they see that this software was pretty heavily flawed in the sense that only 20% of people in general that were predicted to commit crimes again ever did, but surprise, surprise, it was shown to be biased towards black people. Wouldn't you know who won the pony? Can I just ask really quickly? Sure. The 20% of those who predicted to commit crimes again did. Could there be, I'm just going to play devil's advocate, that they received harsher sentences, so reoffense was a lot less as a result? I'm actually not sure. Um, however, if you went straight into ProPublica's platform, they have all their data analysis um, like research that they did on their own data up and maybe it's something you could definitely look at these are just published in like results um and again i'm not sure what the parameters of this statistic are specifically but that's just what it says for now so even more importantly like i said it showed a bias towards black people so they found significant racial disparities in forecasting on who would reoffend. so the al- algorithm that was written in was particularly likely to falsely flag black defendants almost at twice the rate as their white counterparts and white defendants were also mislabeled more often uh, low risk than the black defendants and they had even sometimes committed pretty serious crimes um i saw this one example of this you know a black woman who had committed petty theft or something along those lines and she was given like a, a score of eight most likely to reoffend, where this white man uh, who had committed more serious crimes like grand theft auto and armed robbery and stuff like that was given like a four a, a criminal lifer yeah and so it was really shocking and they showed things that even for example when they controlled for uh, variables such as prior crimes future reoffending age gender Black defendants were 45% more likely to be assigned higher risk scores than their white counterparts. So there is a massive racial bias in um, this system that is actually being used to really change people's lives, right? I mean, if you are incarcerated, that is a massive life change for not just for yourself, but for your families. And if it's being used against one race in particular to say you are more at risk of reoffending, a very big systemic issue in general. Who wrote this fucking software? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I'm unsure also if it's still being used or if after it was exposed, it has been retracted. But it is important to know that some softwares of this same style are still being used today in parts of the United States 
and possibly around the world. We used to drown women to see if they were witches or not. This is the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and I don't think there's, I mean, how do you even argue for this? You know, like, it's one of those obscure things where the judge can be like, well, you know, my score says that it's an eight. And as a lawyer, or even as a defendant, you're like, what do I even say to that? You know, like, what, what did they take into consideration? You say, fuck your score and fuck your software. You can't, you can't do that. Well, in general, this is a, a really good article. I really recommend anybody listening to as more like, interested in, in seeing this. ProPublica, it's online. You just can look up ProPublica Compass. And they show you everything from the methodology they used to what analyses they ran to what their conclusions were. It's a very complete article and it's um, definitely an example of how technology can be susceptible to racial bias. And so these sort of flaws, or better said, this unconscious bias on behalf of people making the algorithms for programs like these, where they hopefully never meant for it to turn out this way intentionally. But you know why it's worse? Why? Because this isn't viewable. This isn't poli- This isn't law enforcement brutality that you can see and share with everyone. This is not. This is very behind the scenes. It's very hidden. And this is a, that's exactly the definition of systemic. When people talk about institutionalized racism or systemic racism. This is what they're talking about. Again, like you said, it's not outright. It's not somebody being killed. It's not somebody, you know, being attacked for the skin color. But it is still something that happens every single day that people don't see behind the scenes that are still massively influence certain people's lives. And most of the times it takes, you know, these articles or these exposés that are really big to expose something like this. And this is something that happens in healthcare, in education, you know, that in this case, African-Americans have uh, the short straw in this and it's wrong. Where I was going with this is that obviously I'm really, really hoping that whoever made this algorithm never had the intentional bias of, you know, overtly making this a racist system. But this is why we call it, you know, unconscious bias. Um, unfortunately, this case of technology having this racial bias is not an isolated incident. Do you remember, Lou, the Apple iPhone X scandal just last year? So I know my script, I'm supposed to say, oh, yeah, I remember that. I had forgotten about this, but this was, how did Apple not lose so much of their stock from this? Absolutely. So for those who don't remember or never found out, this was quite 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 the scandal. So when the Apple iPhone X came out last year, I believe it was, the face recognition technology couldn't tell Chinese people apart. So you started getting, you know, the hype of, oh, a new iPhone is out. And people from China were saying that, you know, this person could open their iPhone through face recognition, but they would give it to their son and it would also open up for them through face recognition. And Apple said, you know, oh, these are isolated incidences. And, you know, the, uh, the iPhone's facial recognition system is practically foolproof. And there were some bugs in there that definitely needed to be fixed. I'm not sure how this actually turned out in the end, but it definitely is a case where it makes us question, you know, the hom- homogeneity in the groups of t- development for this technology. Like, who tested out this technology before it was brought out to the market? Was it just a bunch of white dudes in one circle saying, well, it works for me, it works for me, it works for me? I mean, it's, you know, very questionable. 
And even more, or less shocking, you tell me, um, this is happening in the majority of face recognition technology. So in 2019, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST, published a report showing how 189, we're talking almost 200 face recognition algorithms submitted by 99 different developers across the globe, they how they fared at identifying people from different demographics. So along with different findings, some of the most important ones that I'm going to mention here, at least that I found most interesting and relevant to the conversation we're having, is that many of these algorithms were 10 to 100 times more likely to inaccurately identify a photograph of a black or East Asian face compared to a white one. That's not a few bugs. 10 to 100 times. That's not a few bugs, like you said, you know. And in searching a database but to find a given face, most of these uh, programs picked incorrect images among black women at significantly higher rates than they did among any other demographics. So if that wasn't bad enough, here's the kicker. So you think, well, maybe it's just a bug among all face recognition. No. So a notable exception to this were algorithms developed in Asian countries. So in these algorithms that were were coming from Asian developers, there was no dramatic differences in the false positives when it came to -to one-to-one matching. Mm, I wonder why. Explain for the fine folk who don't understand what you just said what you just said. Absolutely. So we saw this bug where, or quote unquote bug, where the iPhones were giving false positives. So that means I can open up my iPhone with my face and I could give it to my sister and she could open up with her face because we had similar traits. That's what a false positive is. And this was happening among many, many developers, except the ones that were coming from Asia. Once more, it makes us think, well, I'm guessing Asian algorithms did not have a problem detecting differences between Asian phases or even Caucasian phases because they had more diversity in their groups, or at least they have the logic to test it out on more diverse groups. So this is a really clear example of why diversity in groups is super, super important. These blind spots in technology development do not act on its own. So, you know, it's not like the algorithm or the technology itself is racially biased. There are people developing this. So we have to either think to ourselves, where are they getting their data from? Or who are these people who are developing these things? And it brings us to kind of something else that I'd like to touch upon because it really concerns my own field of study, which is psychology. And this is where we have to really ask ourselves, you know, where does the research to make these technologies come from? Who are we researching? Or who do we consider subjects of research? Where do we conduct this research? Because all of these things have an impact on what we consider real in this world. Who are we sampling? Yeah, who are we sampling? You know, who are we studying? And this is a really, really big, important question that Rod and his co-workers, among many other psychologists, um, are studying, really question. So just to give you one very shocking statistic, for example, 96% of studies in psychology that attempt to build theory 
based on empirical observations, have participants or use participants that come from countries representing a mere 12% of the world's population. So, in other words, almost all of the studies conducted in psychology is coming from a very, very, very small percentage of the world's actual population. We are only studying a certain group of people. Now, these people tend to be countries that come from Western, industrialized, democratic um, countries, right? So we're talking the US, we're talking the UK, we're talking most of Europe, we're talking Australia, we're talking Canada. And most of our studies come from those countries. Now, I'm not saying this is like a white supremacist uh, conspiracy theory to leave everybody else in the dark. But, you know, as a Mexican, I constantly see research being defunded in my own country and it's really sad and I'm sure it's the same situation for many other countries but it's still a really really concerning thing when we think about you know all these theories that come up or all these observations you know we see that words are processed in this specific part of the brain or there are four different types of personalities and people where only we're only actually seeing 12% of the world what happens almost 80% of it absolutely let me tell you a little tale from the past from someone I used to work with. He went on this um, sort of workshop on how to work out what kind of person you are. And they they broke it down into those four colours and you're kind of a little bit of all of them, but you have some stronger than others. Mm-hmm. And I, I said to my friend, well, said to a friend of mine behind his back, this is a load of bullshit, isn't it? He says, oh yeah, oh yeah, it all is. This is all come, this all this study has come from the same populace of people generally better off generally well off generally in safe countries no absolutely and this is something that was really shocking to me when i went to do my master's in the uk you know i love the field of neuroscience and i was so excited to be part of you know what was going on in that field and then i realized that most of the experiments being done in the field of neuroscience they were recruiting university students to do them And I was really, really shocked. I mean, talk about homogenous groups. I mean, we were several international students. White, rich, privately educated. Yeah, exactly. You are making massive assumptions on the people that you are testing, right? And these are theories that are being, you know, thrown out there at least to what the UK looks like. Does the entire UK look mostly white, mostly middle class, mostly privately educated, mostly... Does the whole UK look like York? (laughs) Yeah, basically. And, and, you know, while I definitely understand that you have to control for certain things to make a decent study and working with people is incredibly hard. This is something that I, I did question some of my lecturers on, you know, in Mexico, we're a little bit more aware of differences in social classes and what that entails. And we tend to control for that, for example. But to really think about these studies and say, you know, human nature is like this, when I'm testing a really, really small bunch of people, that is really, really dangerous in the end, isn't it? Massively dangerous. So, you know, like I said, Solari Rudd is not the only person doing studies on this. Gervin from the University of California in Santa Barbara also does some studies on this. And he kind of sums it up in one quote really nicely, which I'd like to say word for word, which is, But if we want to understand the human condition, it's necessary to consider people living under a wide range of experiences, cultures, and environments. So in the end of the day, you know, we need to build 
better science and better technology to better describe the world and to make sure that every citizen is represented in it. And I think that's a really, really big challenge. But this also kind of led me to think, you know, while we're only really scratching the surface of how racial and other structured structural systems interact with science and technologies, this is a conversation we should be having every single day on a daily basis. You know, as scientists and as students, we every time we conduct an experiment, when we talk to one another, when people publish, when people are testing, we, we really like to say, you know, the data speaks for itself. And that's something that a lot of people start off with presentations with. But especially when we work with people, I think we assume objectivity is something just a given in science. And what we don't realize is that, no, data doesn't speak for itself. It can't speak. We give data a voice. And it's not just in how we interpret results, but from the very core of these studies, you know, what variables are we controlling for? What assumptions are we making about the population? Are we assuming they have the same diet? Are we assuming they have the same upbringing? Are we assuming they come from the same social class? You know, what what do we highlight in our findings? There are so many things that, you know, we need to think about. And, you know, maybe you can pitch in on this, Lou, like my favorite part, or I think the most important part of papers, especially published in science, are the limitations. Because I think this is the most important part where we can really ask ourselves, what are the blind spots of my studies? What are the blind spots of my science? What can we actually generalize? And what can we not? You know, what am I not accounting for? What voices should I be looking towards or amplifying to make up for this blind spot and how can I approach a subject without being condescending and compassionate you know it's definitely an everyday effort it's not just a trend so it's seems to me that all the psychological theory developed on such a small proportion of the population is scandalous yeah I mean you know, it's not everyone, and we have faced these criticisms in psychology before, um, coming from different places. But in general, I think it doesn't, you know, make any less of the research that is done now or has been done in the past. But we should take it with a grain of salt, saying, you know, well, how much can we generalize this? You know, it's this question of depends on the study in question, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and you know, who are we studying? You know, what do, are we assuming of these people? And, you know, I'm not sure if in chemistry this really applies, but, you know, when we work with people, we're talking about really complex beings and really complex fields of study, right? Well, I think it's scandalous. I think, you, you know, you need to reevaluate everything you've done. You know, and, and I think, um, more importantly, we have to diversify where we're studying, what we're studying, and what we are making of these studies, you know? Part of my background comes from developmental and sociocultural psychology, where I was part of a research group that did research on Mayan and indigenous communities here in Mexico. And it was really fascinating research because it really broke all parameters of what we considered learning. What do we consider education? What do we consider development? What do we consider dangerous for a child to do and what not to do, right? And I think these are fields of research that also deserve a lot of merit because they are really expanding our horizon on what we consider normal and what we consider outside of normal or what we consider an an uneducated person versus an educated person. So there are studies being done out there with the 
diversity of people needed, but it's definitely something we have to consider. And before we get accused of rambling, should we should we move forward a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, kind of to conclude my own thoughts on this subject is that you know, everyone has the right to live a life that is free of the fear that you know, that in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of an institution, you are the wrong skin color or the wrong gender or the wrong sexual orientation or whatever. And I think the murder of George Floyd really brought to life, you know, this issue once more and what's an ongoing effort. And institutionalized racism prevents certain people from having, you know, equal health care, equal education, equal rights, equal opportunity, equal everything. And I think as a science community, it's given that this is kind of like a podcast dedicated to bearing fake news through science, we must also think of the fact that when we hold back even one single person, let alone an entire group of people because of their skin color or anything else, we are condemning all of humanity to always, always being subpar and to never reaching its full potential. Because I think, you know, we face some really big issues nowadays and we will be facing some really big issues later on. You know, cancer is something that we have going on that everybody's kind of encountered at some point or nuclear war always looming or antibiotic resistance. You know, these are things that affect us all. And we have to think to ourselves, you know, what if the solution or an important advancement to any of these issue issues is stuck inside the brain of a little girl whose community doesn't believe in women's education? or in the brain of a gay person who is constantly discriminated in their job search because of their sexual orientation. Or maybe it's in the brain of a person of color like Trayvon Martin, who was deprived of life because they were walking down the wrong street. You know, I'm hoping that in the science community, you know, these challenges are met with even bigger solutions. But we have to think that denying access and opportunities to people of color or black people or anybody else literally stunts progress in these matters for years or decades or even centuries you know and this should be a concern and it should motivate everyone to build a more just world for black people and every other system or group of people that face systemic oppression i i could not agree more it's such a tricky topic to discuss yeah it's such a hard topic to discuss it's so i'm i'm white Right, I can't relate to any of the things that a lot of when I, I didn't see in my face racism for a long time in my life, probably because I grew up in a predominantly white area. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, as a Latino myself, I think that I have been very privileged in my own community with certain things, but you know, the murder of George Floyd and every other black person as a person of color myself that loves to visit the United States, it makes me feel unsafe. And it reminds me that there is this always idea of that's one person and these people with different skin are other people. And honestly, you know what? Do you know what? I agree. I absolutely agree. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish on a rant yeah. because I feel this is the appropriate to do. I feel like I've been walking on eggshells this whole show because I don't want to offend people who are black, Asian, minority, ethnic, Latino. I don't want to upset them. I want to show that we do stand here at Burying Fake News, me and you, in solidarity because we do. But let's be real. Nobody becomes a police officer because of the pay in the United States. No one. All right? Mm -hmm. So there is only two reasons why anyone is ever going to join the police. Because you give a fuck and you want to give back and you care about the community or you want to live out your movie fantasies, carry a gun to make up for your little dick 
and shoot people. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that being a thing. In training, you would have thought that some of these bad apples would have been weaned out, but they're tolerated, and you know who these people are. It's up to us to fucking stand up and say things when it's not easy to say things. When you're in a group chat and someone says something that's just so insensitive, you have to be the one to say, no, we are better and we do better. Absolutely. And I think it really goes into what I was saying. You know, it's an everyday effort. This isn't a trend and this isn't a trending topic. It's really in your everyday conversations from your frontiers, guys, you know, whether you're a doctor or an artist or a musician or a scientist. Whether you work in a warehouse and you pull the pump truck, whether you work in a pub and you pull pints. Absolutely. Everybody in their own frontier has to do something. And, you know, even if it's just talking to someone and saying, hi, I don't agree with what you're saying. Exactly. So the next fuck you, and it's a big fuck you, is to everyone out there who knows they work with a racist, who knows that they're on the force with someone who is a piece of shit and does nothing. It's what I said at the start, for evil to triumph, it takes good men to do nothing. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. We're going long and we never apologise for length on this show or for anything else on this show. Should we move on to my favorite section of the week? Absolutely. So we're going to move on to tweets of the week. You can send us your nominations and all the atrocious things you find online at bearingfakenews at gmail.com. Play that funky music, white boy. Oh, that music, it's Tweet of the Week, and just to try and finish off in a, not on a light-hearted note, because it makes us sound like we don't want to talk about the stuff at the start, we just want to be upbeat, right, sweetie? Yeah, and I think we need to see that, you know, fake news still circulating nowadays. Absolutely, I'll kick us off, here we go, starting strong, number one, fed up of all this bullshit now, all this corona business, everything is so contradicting and makes no sense, fucking turn it in, soz if you think I'm a cunt, but come on! Everyone's brainwashed to fuck. It's so dumb. Oh, God. This person sounds really confused. Poor guy. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to assume gender, but they didn't look like a guy. Oh, well, you know, poor girl. Anyone. Poor person. I think there's a lot of emotions going on in the street. Poor person. We're really treading on eggshells today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then, So I'm going to kick off number two. It says, the media and Democrats are going to say coronavirus is coming back. This is a lie for them to seize back control and have a lockdown. I have true data on hospitals. I can see what is real and what isn't. Wow. What is the true data? I need to see this true data on hospitals. (laughs) I don't understand why anybody would say, like, having a lockdown is something either party or any government would want to do in, you know, in general, so... Uh, really, I don't create the culture, I just comment on the culture. If the culture kicks up a fucking idiot who claims to have true data and this, that and the other, then I shall comment. (laughs) (laughs) So, number three, this was interesting. This was a promoted tweet about conditions, general conditions in the United Arab Emirates prisons. And this was a reply straight out of nowhere, like a left-wing, what do they call it in uh, football, a left-wing left pass or whatever it was a curveball is what this was for the poor we're not we're not sports fanatics you know the blue ticked uh, well i mean i I, i've seen a sport (laughs) i'm a good sport that's probably about 
Not to question what best. Well, quote, Firstly, the UAE doesn't have secret prisons. And secondly, the UAE is completely in control of the spread of corona. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Maybe corona beer. Well, no, because that would be haram, I'd have thought. They drink beer over there. Do they? No clue, but this person also appears to not have a single clue or, you know, no, have too many clues. No idea. Don't tweet and drink, people. Don't. Don't drink and tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Number four. Corona is a bid scam. True doctors are revealing the truth, and the truth is nobody can die. Nobody can die. Wow. I'd like to point out that true is, is capitalized. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but only the T is capitalized. Yeah, just the T. Have you, just the T. <laughs> I promise I will never die. Have you seen Team America? I don't even know what that oh, is. It's been oh, no, yes, of course. It's the movie you made me watch that one I time. Pretty- I promise I will never die. That's what that is. Mm. Oh, it's my go. I need to pay attention. Wake up, Gucci. Number five. More outright corona lies. The lamestream media who, and quote, local leaders, have but one goal. Defeat Trump in Nov, and then install communism. Oh, wow. (laughs) I think that's actually, is that not two goals, technically? (laughs) I, I love how it goes from like defeat Donald Trump and then install communism. Oh God! <laughs> I don't want that update. <laughs> I don't want to I do know. that installation. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so number six, Doctor Fauci is a phony and a typical politician. He has one agenda, and that is to elevate his own ego. All right. Well, <laughs> I would like to start with Doctor Fauci is definitely an awful phony politician because he is not in any sense a politician. And I really doubt that if somebody actually asked him, you know, knowing what we know now, if he wanted to take up the job offer, he'd be like, no. He stands there and he just hates himself. If like, you know, when you fucked up bad and you just wish the world would swallow you. you what the hell was that? Did the world swallow you whole then? Sorry, that was my microphone. <laughs> oh my goodness. The poor listeners. I was saying when you fucked up so bad, I'm not even going to edit that out. It's staying in. Oh, God. When you fucked up so bad and you just sit there and you think, God, I wish the world would just open up and swallow me. Yeah. If someone could record what you looked like, you would look like Fauci standing next to Trump as he kind of blithers and blathers and moves his hands and gesticulates and tries to form coherent sentences, which he does unsuccessfully because he just hasn't got the ability to talk like an educated man. Yeah, absolutely. He does not look happy to be there, does he? Jesus Christ. Poor Faust. No, he doesn't want to be there. He looks. You remember when you saw Mark Zuckerberg on the trials and he looked like yeah. the guy who'd been bitten by a zombie in movies but hadn't told anyone yet? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that's like, what Faust looks yeah. like next to. Just like, oh, just, just end it all. Oh my gosh. Let's move on. Number seven. I literally know no one with Corona. And no one I know knows anyone with Corona. So it's all a myth. We will never be a communist country. Wow. There was a lot of assumptions going on in the middle there between those two sentences. <laughs> and that, I, I saw it, I was like, yeah, that's made the cut. That's made the cut every day of the week. That's made the I cut. I love how communism <laughs> is such a trend among these tweets. Like, you know, where are you guys getting this information from? It's a mortal fear from the hash. Because these are all from people with the American fucking flag behind them and it says hashtag 2A on their bio and hashtag M-A-G-A and all their shit's misspelled. Communism is huge and they're mortally afraid of it for some reason. Apparently more than the coronavirus. So the next one says, Corona is nothing. It's just a myth. I haven't seen anyone known getting infected and dying. 
if unfortunately some known person dies. Doctors killed him by injection in the name of Corona, as he was okay a moment ago. That is common census in Pakistan. Jesus Christ. The, I, I end up in weird parts of Twitter world when I go on these uh, deep dives. I know, I'm so happy I'm not the one having to do it. Oh, I like number nine. Number nine might be my favourite. Corona's a myth, bro. You only catch it if you believe in it. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. This reminds me of the religion tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cut you it. believe in it. Yeah. Leave it. Don't cut it. I, that's really funny. I, I like that one. Good look. Put in a doggy bag. I'll take it home with me. I don't believe in corona. I will never get the corona. This rona go away. I don't believe in dying. I will never die. Yeah. Number 10, something lighthearted, just to be a palate cleanser tweet, was by Johnny Owl. This was tweeted one day after episode two of Burying Fake News went live. If you haven't heard it yet, go check it out. We're on iOS too. Quote, attention. Due to fear of getting coronavirus, I will not be having a boyfriend at this time. That is the only reason. Please do not believe rumours that no one is interested or I make it difficult to love me. That is really funny. I thought I thought that made, that made me laugh. But yeah, that's got to be my palate cleansing tweet for the day. Oh, God. I, I enjoy that. So there it is, guys. The Black Lives Matter dedicated episode by Burying Fake News, myself and Mariella. We will be back next week talking about what the microchip is and what the microchip isn't and why it's definitely not in any vaccine you're ever going to have remember take care of yourselves take care of each other go and learn something new and in the time between now and the next show go and unlearn anything you don't think we need to know about racism is not genetic it is taught anything you are taught you can untaught (laughs) unlearn unlearn Ooh, that's a much harder thing to do, but very important also. Also, So, in the meanwhile, we'd love to hear from you guys and anything you have to say. So, you can reach us at bearingfakenews at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter at BFNews or Instagram at bearingfakenews. We're on Facebook and YouTube. Please like and subscribe and help us sanitize the web of misinformation out there. Absolutely. Time to go. See you later, guys. Say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie.